This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm really excited to be talking to you about the possibility of treating cancer pain without opioids today. As many of you know, cancer has impacted so many of us in this country, and over 1.9 million people are diagnosed with cancer every year. In the U.S., there are currently over 16 million people living with cancer. That's not including the greater than 600,000 deaths that are occurring annually. Pain is a very important problem and a very significant problem in patients who have cancer. And up to 90% of patients with advanced cancer have pain that significantly impacts their function, mood, and sleep. Cancer pain is a very complicated topic because there are many sources of pain that a cancer patient might experience. There's pain that comes directly from the tumor as the tumor itself is invading the bone and soft tissues. And if, if tumor is spreading to the organs or starting in the organs, that can cause its own type of pain as well. Uniquely to cancer pain, there are lots of pains that are related to the treatment meant to save the lives of patients who have cancer. As many of you know, chemotherapy is in fact a very toxic type of treatment. And in addition to destroying cells such as the hair that we associate with chemotherapy and that hair loss that we see, it can also destroy nerves. In a, in a condition called chemotherapy-induced peripheral neuropathy, patients have destruction of the nerves in their hands and in their feet that cause them to have burning sensation and burning pain in those areas. Similarly, radiation treatment can cause its own nerve damage as radiation destroys the nerves near the tumor that it is trying to destroy. Interestingly, while we do all know about the acute pain that happens after surgery, in cancer patients in particular, there is a higher risk of post-surgical pain that lasts for a very, very long time. And some of the common surgeries after which we see this are surgeries where part of a limb is, is removed, leading to stump pain, and surgeries that remove the breast or the lung in mastectomy and thoracotomy, leading to post-mastectomy and post-thoracotomy pain. Very importantly, we should note that cancer patients can experience pain that have nothing to do with their cancer at all. And this is particularly evident in patients who have survived and are in remission. In addition, patients who are currently being treated for cancer may also have their own chronic pain that is not related to the cancer at hand. And I've seen some patients actually not be able to tolerate their chemotherapy or the radiation because their other chronic pain is so severe. It's great that we're seeing more and more patients survive, but as a result, we are seeing survivorship issues where patients who, can, who are surviving past their initial time of treatment are having more and more issues with chronic pain that are not related to their initial diagnosis. In 1984, the World Health Organization, also known as WHO, developed a stepladder which relies on oral and intravenous medications for the pharmacological management of cancer pain. What you see here is three steps. We start from the, the weakest medications first. These are often over-the-counter medications in step one, such as aspirin, 
acetaminophen, often known as Tylenol, and NSAIDs, which stands for non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Examples of NSAIDs include ibuprofen, also commonly known as Motrin, or naproxen, commonly known as Aleve. In step two, we start seeing the introduction of what we consider weak opioids, such as tramadol. And we also see some opioids mixed in with acetaminophen, which is also known as APAP. The combination of these medications, although the medications in and of themselves are not necessarily weaker, are perceived to be a little bit weaker because they are combined with a Tylenol and there are more limits to the actual amount of opioid an individual can receive in a given day. As pain escalates further, we're treating with step three medications. And these are the really strong opioid medications, including some more commonly known ones, such as morphine, hydromorphone, which is commonly called Dilaudid, fentanyl, and oxycodone. However, even though the WHO step ladder was revolutionary in its time and has really led to great strides in improving cancer pain management, it has been estimated that up to 25% of patients with cancer find the WHO step ladder inadequate for their pain control. Additionally, opioids, as you know, are not benign. They can cause many possible side effects, leading to a poor quality of life. On the right, you see a graphic demonstrating the common side effects of oxycodone. And this is representative of the opioid class of medications in general. Some of the most common side effects include fatigue, confusion, nausea, vomiting, and constipation. Some more serious side effects include hallucination, dizziness, swelling of the face, mouth, and extremities, seizures, irregular heartbeats, and decreased breathing. Furthermore, long-term use, even when appropriate and given as prescribed by a physician, can lead to drug dependence. At high doses, opioids can actually cause increased sensitivity to pain due to a phenomenon called opioid-induced hyperalgesia, and this is a paradoxical effect. Finally, in the elderly and debilitated, like those with cancer, there is an increased risk of side effects from opioids. With treatments improving every day for cancer, we are seeing more and more survivors of cancer. But we are not necessarily adjusting how we prescribe opioids to them. And patients often can be on opioids well past the time of their cancer treatment when they are in remission. This has led to an increase in opioid-related problems such as substance abuse or adverse drug events. Two-thirds of cancer survivors are older adults who are even more susceptible to adverse events. Therefore, even appropriate prescribing of opioids for cancer patients can still be problematic. Studies have shown that cancer survivors have an increased risk of adverse events due to opioid use. In a study looking at breast cancer patients, they found a nearly 15-fold increased risk of substance abuse, a two-and-a-half-fold increased risk of adverse drug events, and a 2.8-fold risk of all-cause hospitalization. Furthermore, they found that patients who were taking higher doses of opioids had an even higher risk of adverse drug events due to substance abuse. For patients on higher doses of opioids, greater than 50 milligram equivalents of morphine a day, that risk was 3.4-fold versus 2.3-fold in patients taking less than 50 milligrams a day.
For colorectal patients, another study showed a 2.3 times increased risk of opioid overdose. I want to be very clear that opioid doses are very unlikely overall in cancer patients, but we do need to be aware that the treatments that we're providing them for their pain management is important and may actually cause adverse events after their remission. I'd like to summarize again and say that opioids are absolutely the very first line therapy for cancer pain as demonstrated by the WHO stepladder. However, there are adverse outcomes and adverse effects from opioids. There can be inadequate pain control, there can be harmful side effects, and there may be detrimental long-term consequences as well. Therefore, we are spending some time today to discuss some of the possible alternatives to opioids. While there are so many different alternatives, we will really focus on three approaches, acupuncture, mindfulness, and interventional pain management. Dr. Reese already spoke about acupuncture a couple of weeks ago, and Drs. Ivan and Jackson spoke about mindfulness at the beginning of the series. So we will briefly touch upon them as they pertain to cancer pain. And instead, we will spend the bulk of our talk discussing interventions. In addition to the inadequate pain control and harmful side effects due to opioids, another reason to consider alternatives to opioids is that decreased exposure to opioids during cancer patients can actually help wean opioids after their treatment is over, leading to fewer long-term complications. Acupuncture is an ancient Chinese technique coming from traditional medicine that has been used for a variety of symptoms, notably pain, but also nausea, stress, and sleep, which also plague cancer patients as well. Acupuncture involves the use of very, very small needles, and they follow meridian lines meaning that the needle placement is not necessarily directly over a painful area. There is modest benefit shown in studies with some improvement of about one or two points on an 11-point pain scale. There are very minimal risks associated with acupuncture, but include feeling sleepy, some soreness from the needle insertion site, and an extremely low risk of infection. For me and my patients, given that the risks are so low with acupuncture, even if the benefit is relatively modest, I still recommend trying it if it's available and covered. I wanted to go back and state that the needle placement, because it's not directly over the painful area, can sometimes be better tolerated. And in fact, in, for example, on the hand, there are different points on the hand that can help with migraines, leg pain, shoulder pain, and sleep, among others. Next, we'll move on to mindfulness, which has already been covered previously in our series. I want to just review a little bit and ask, why does psychology matter, especially for a cancer patient? We're absolutely not implying that any pain is in the head, meaning that it's made up or it's not there, but actually that the psychological being of ourselves actually does impact the pain. In fact, the International Association for the Study of Pain defines pain as an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with or resembling that associated with actual or potential damage. We cannot actually separate out the perception of pain from our emotional experience with the pain. And therefore, psychology does matter even for cancer patients. We utilize the biopsychosocial model to understand better how we can evaluate and treat the whole person. 
In this model, we see that pain is actually affected by biological, psychological, and social factors. The biological components of pain might be somewhat easier to understand, as one might be able to appreciate that disease, genetics, and injury might directly attribute to pain. Nociception is a term used for the signaling of our nerves to our brain that allow us to perceive pain. And the stress response that we have in response to pain actually worsens it as the stress response and that, uh, that increased rush of adrenaline actually increases the abnormal firing of nerves, leading to the worsening of pain. Therefore, things that increase that stress response, such as anxiety, depression, and trauma may significantly negatively impact our experience of pain. From a social construct, we can also understand how family and friends or the lack thereof and support or isolation can actually work to have a deep impact on our experience of a pain and the severity of pain. Therefore, coping mechanisms such as mindfulness can have a meaningful positive impact on pain, which is why it's helpful in treating cancer pain as well. One of the lovely things about mindfulness is that it can be as simple as just deep breathing. It can help us reduce pain and learn to non-judgmentally observe bodily sensations, including pain. It can help us to distance from emotions that can worsen pain and has been shown to reduce stress, improve relaxation of the muscles, and also helps reduce depression and improve the quality of life. Mindfulness and pain psychology are very well studied in chronic pain, but less research has been done in mindfulness for cancer patients. However, limited research does show that there is a small benefit to mindfulness in cancer patients. Mindfulness is not meant to completely relieve all pain, as it is just one tool to help with pain management in cancer patients. Because mindfulness is non-invasive in that it does not use any needles and has essentially no harm, this is a good option for cancer patients for whom even small benefits are meaningful. We'll next turn to the topic of interventional pain management. In medicine, the techniques of interventional pain management are often colloquially called nerve blocks, but this does not adequately capture the breadth of the approaches we have available. However, if your clinician, your physician, describes nerve blocks, this is probably what they mean is this general approach of interventional pain management. The idea behind interventional pain management is to decrease the perception of pain to that area. We do this by using a combination of local anesthetic and steroid, which can help numb up and or decrease inflammation to painful areas. We can inject these medications into tissues or joints directly or near nerves. Similarly to acupuncture, the nerves are not necessarily directly overlying the tumor and skin, so we oftentimes are able to safely inject while still avoiding cancer. And also that means that we are not necessarily inserting our needles into the most painful areas. When we think about procedures, we have to consider benefits and risks. The benefits of procedures include improved pain control, decreased side effects from systemic medications due to the fact that you are taking fewer medications, and an improved quality of life. 
There are always risks anytime we use a needle, such as we do with intervention, and these include infection and bleeding. Cancer patients may have a slightly higher risk for infection and bleeding due to the treatments that may, one, depress their immune system, increasing their infection risk, or the need to take blood thinners that make them more prone to bleeding. Additionally, patients may find the procedure uncomfortable as they have baseline discomfort, and there are also specific procedural complications to consider. When I first meet a patient, I have many questions that are important to me to try to get some answers for. One of the most important questions in considering whether a patient is a good candidate for interventional pain management is whether their pain is regional or localized. While I often may have a technique or approach that might help decrease your pain from maybe your belly button all the way down through your legs, interventions are not really appropriate if your pain is head to toe. In that case, medications truly are more appropriate. Other patients who are good candidates for interventional pain include those who have intractable pain on the current medications they're using or are unable to tolerate or have unsafe use of pain medications. The prognosis of any individual patient is helpful for me to better understand because it does dictate the optimal approach. Depending on the prognosis, I may choose a procedure that maybe is lower risk and lasts a shorter period of time versus another procedure that might last longer and have better long-term benefit but might be riskier. And finally, one of the other considerations is the timing of cancer treatment, such as chemotherapy. There are many side effects from treatments, including chemotherapy, that can lead to increased infection or bleeding risk, as chemotherapy, for example, is commonly known to decrease your white count, which is needed to fight off infection or destroy your platelets, which are needed to help you clot. One way of thinking about procedures is by technique. And there are four general categories of technique with an interventional pain management. The first is superficial procedures, and this includes trigger point injections where we are injecting a needle directly under the skin into the muscle. The next category is this bucket of nerve blocks. And I put this in quotes because actually we're not always injecting into nerves, but sometimes even into the joints. This is a broad category that includes, that involves the use of one or more needles to inject medications into tissues, joints, or near nerves. The next category is called neurolysis, and this means the destruction of nerves. This is typically done through chemicals such as alcohol, which burns nerves, most commonly performed for sympathetic nerves that supply the internal organs. The final category is advanced therapies, which includes implanted intrathecal pain pumps, which are appropriate for patients with slightly longer prognoses, or epidural infusions, which are more appropriate for patients with a very limited prognosis, such as days or weeks. Another way to categorize procedures is by their location. And this slide is not meant to be an exhaustive display of the types of procedures that we can do. However, this does represent some of the more commonly performed procedures that I perform on my cancer patients. And as you can see, we have something nearly for all the areas of your body from head to toe. But as I mentioned earlier, my techniques typically are a little bit more localized in the areas that they control 
And so I can't typically help somebody who's got pain from head to toe with an interventional technique. Those patients may be better served with other medications. Today, we will focus on three of the more commonly used interventional approaches to cancer pain management, trigger point injections, the celiac plexus block, and intrathecal pump. I'd like to share the story of one of my patients, a middle-aged man with metastatic colon cancer to the lung who presented after having a thoracotomy, which is a surgery used to remove part of his lung, and he presented to me with scapular pain, which is pain of the shoulder blade. He was a former IV drug user and was being treated with methadone to maintain his sobriety, and he desperately wanted to avoid opioids. His cardiothoracic surgeon felt that the thoracotomy and the scapular pain were not related, even though, as you might see in this image, that the shoulder blade is very close to where the incision goes for a thoracotomy. And indeed, when I examined him in the clinic, we discovered that he had myofascial pain, which is pain of the muscle and connective tissues, which was not directly related to the thoracotomy. As a result, we decided to offer trigger point injections. Trigger points are areas of tenderness in your muscles. And on the left here, you can see very common areas of trigger points on your body. You might experience a few of these yourself. A trigger point is a top band of muscle. And what we see in this image on the right top hand corner is that normal muscle fibers look relatively linear while the top band of muscle fibers are a little bit larger in appearance. We actually inject trigger points themselves using a very small needle and inject directly under the skin into the muscle. These are easily performed at the bedside and for cancer patients who may be on blood thinners, we actually allow them to have these procedures with blood thinners as they are so superficial and minimally invasive. We also use a technique called needling, and this helps us actually physically use the needle to break up the tight bands of muscles, and this can be very helpful. And I highly recommend for patients with myofascial pain to combine the strategy of using trigger points in combination with physical therapy to help maintain the benefits. Myofascial pain is actually quite common in cancer patients. One, because myofascial pain is just common in the general public. But for cancer patients in particular, they may actually have compensatory pain, for example, in the shoulder or hip, even if they're cancer and their main pain is actually in the leg. Patients who have undergone mastectomies for breast cancer or thoracotomies for lung cancer can sometimes develop anatomical changes that actually torque their body position, leading them to develop pain in their muscles and connective tissues. Finally, many cancer patients may be bed-bound and they may develop back pain from prolonged bed rest. Over the next one and a half years, we performed multiple sets of trigger point injections. His main goal was to continue working out the gym, which he was able to do. A secondary goal was actually to limit the amount of opioid that he used. In his case, he used hydromorphone because that made him feel sleepy, and he really preferred to avoid that given his prior IV drug use. He was so adamant about not using any opioid medications and maintaining his sobriety that even as his disease progressed, it actually took a lot of convincing for him to take more medications as his pain spread beyond his shoulder into many areas of his body. 
Ultimately, he did take more medications and he was able to pass away very comfortably at home with hospice after his disease had progressed. Next, I'd like to share the story of another patient, a middle-aged man with metastatic pancreatic cancer to the liver who had undergone multiple procedures to relieve biliary obstruction and had already been enrolled in a clinical trial for disease progression after failing other more standard lines of treatment. He had poorly controlled abdominal pain for a month despite taking a daily morphine equivalent dose of 420 to 480. And even despite that, he was experiencing severe sedation and constipation to those very medications. I just want to provide some context that even after a knee surgery, which is one of the most painful surgeries that one might undergo, a typical opiate prescription might be on the order of 50 to 150 milligrams of morphine as compared to this 420 to 480. And the CDC guidelines state that 50 milligrams is considered relatively high. Ultimately, after I met him, I recommended a celiac plexus block to help him with his pain and to minimize the side effects from his opioid medication. The celiac plexus is a web of nerves that originates from the spine and meets at the celiac ganglion, a collection of nerve bodies. These nerves then innervate essentially all the abdominal organs except the left colon and pelvic organs, and they innervate the liver, stomach, and intestines. The celiac plexus block is commonly used to treat abdominal pain, and while it has been studied in many different types of cancers that lead to abdominal pain, it's been best studied in pancreatic cancer. The celiac plexus is performed with a patient sleeping on their stomach. I usually recommend some IV sedation and twilight anesthesia, not necessarily because the procedure itself is so uncomfortable, but because the main reason these patients come to see me is for the abdominal pain and therefore laying on their stomach may be uncomfortable. The entire procedure only takes about 10 or 20 minutes. It's performed in a clinic usually, and patients can often be discharged within about an hour. We use x-rays to guide the placement of our needle so that we can enter from the back and, and move the needle towards the celiac plexus. We use very, very thin and long needles, which are much smaller than an IV, to inject medicines towards the celiac plexus in this approach. There are two types of approaches to the celiac plexus block. One involves using steroids, and the other is called a neurolytic block. For steroid blocks, we use a local anesthetic and steroid, and they typically last weeks to months. In a neurolytic block, we actually chemically burn the nerves using alcohol, and this lasts more typically three to six months. Celiac plexus blocks and neurolytic celiac plexus blocks are known to have both benefits and risks. The benefits include roughly 80 to 90% efficacy with neurolytic blocks lasting months. Due to the fact that patients experience better pain control, they actually do not have the side effects that would be considered with standard analgesic therapy with opioid medications, for example, such as constipation, nausea, or vomiting. Common side effects from the celiac plexus block include transient diarrhea and a transient drop in the blood pressure. For neurolysis, there are some serious risks that I always advise my patients of. There have been studies that have shown neurological deficits causing nerve damage and even paraplegia. 
this is actually a very rare event and is even lower risk with alcohol, which is what I commonly used, compared with phenol, which is an alternative. In the literature, the risk is really low, and the highest risk that's been cited is 0.2%, with many other studies showing a 0% risk and this being really more of a theoretical risk. For me, because of this even very small risk, even if it's relatively theoretical, I still sometimes start with a steroid block to determine whether it's worth this possible risk because the devastation that would occur with paraplegia is so paramount. In this meta-analysis where the study investigators looked at multiple different studies looking at patients who underwent neurolytic celiac plexus blocks, they found incredible relief. Looking at over 1,100 patients, they found that within the first three months, 90% of patients actually experienced good to excellent pain relief. After three months, that benefit dropped off a little bit, but still 70 to 90% of patients from three months after the procedure until their death experienced good to excellent pain relief. In this study, which was a double-blinded, randomized, placebo-controlled study, they found that patients who underwent the neurolytic celiac plexus block had improved mood scores and reduced pain interference with activity. On the left, the graph shows that patients who were in the alcohol group, the treatment group, had lower pain scores compared to the patients that were in the saline group, which was the placebo group. Interestingly, even though it was not power to detect this in the study, which makes this finding even more remarkable, the, the investigators found that there was also longer survival in patients who underwent the alcohol celiac plexus block. And this is really attributed to the fact that patients who have better function because they have less pain with their movement or have better improved mood, they're able to also tolerate additional treatments as well. And the combination of all of these improvements can lead to longer survival. My patient underwent a standard steroid celiac plexus block, and even with that, he was able to completely stop all of his opioids. He actually spent the holidays with his two teenage sons and partner, pain-free and alert. Unfortunately, he was admitted to the hospital two weeks later for an unrelated infection that ultimately took his life, but he remained pain-free until the final day of his life. Prior to the celiac plexus block, his pain meds were not working, and he was not getting quality time with his children because he was so sedated on those medications. In addition, those main medications were also causing him constipation, which further exacerbated his pain. Sometimes in pain management, it's not just about the specific pain scores and decreasing the pain scores, but it's also about what we lose when we have out-of-control pain or are so sedated from pain medications. In this case, all he wanted was to spend time with his family, which he was finally able to do in a meaningful way because he was alert and present even towards the very end. Finally, I'd like to share the story of Darren, one of my dearest patients. His mom, Sherry, pictured here, gave permission to share both his story as well as pictures of his journey and is in the audience tonight. When I first met Darren, he was a 16-year-old boy with right leg osteosarcoma, a type of bone cancer, which had metastasized to his lungs and pelvis, presenting with severe rectal, pelvic, and left hip pain. 
the pediatric team had already put him on a very hefty and very robust pain regimen, including many different types of pain medications, including gabapentin, a nerve medication, a lidocaine patch, which is a local anesthetic, and even lorazepam, which is an anxiety medication that is often used for pain to decrease the perception of pain. In addition, he was on very high doses of opioids as well. He was on a fentanyl patch and two other types of long-acting opioids. Despite that, he still had what we call breakthrough pain, which is pain that is above and beyond your baseline pain and require two different regimens of short-acting opioids, totaling over 1,000 morphine equivalents a day. And just remember, our, our knee surgery patients typically are taking about 50 to 150 immediately after their surgery. Despite this very robust and very hefty pain management regimen that Darren was on, his pain was so poorly controlled that the pediatrics team was actually considering inducing a medical coma known as palliative sedation so that he would no longer be aware of his pain. However, after my team was involved, we decided to recommend an intrathecal pump instead. On the left of this page is a picture of an intrathecal pump. The circular part is the pump itself. It is made of titanium metal. It's about the size of a hockey puck, so it's not particularly small. This is implanted just under the skin and above the muscles, usually in the lower abdomen. The long white catheter is inserted into the spine and then connected to the pump, which contains the medication. On the right, you see a schematic of where the pump goes into the lower abdomen and how the catheter connected to the pump can deliver medications to the spine. In this way, these pumps are completely internalized so that there is no externalized parts and you don't see any evidence of it outside. In order to better appreciate why intrathecal therapy is so helpful, we have to understand the journey of a pill. When you swallow a pill, it first makes its way to the stomach. There, it's broken down in the stomach, in the small intestine, and liver. From there, it then circulates through the bloodstream, finally reaching its target and goes to work. Here, we can see a picture of the spinal cord, which is where the dorsal horn is. The dorsal horn is where our pain receptors live. So they live in our back. And what you see here is the spinal cord in the middle and the bones protecting it on either side. The spinal cord is surrounded by what we call cerebrospinal fluid, which is fluid that travels up and down the spine and also goes to the brain. In intrathecal therapy, we take medications and directly introduce them into this space that contains the cerebrospinal fluid, which is immediately adjacent to the spinal cord. Therefore, you don't lose all of that drug in the process of traveling from the mouth to the stomach, through the liver, into the bloodstream, and then finally to the spinal cord. It goes directly there. What that means is there's increased efficacy. And studies have shown that the ratio of intrathecal medication to systemic oral medications is 1 to 300. What that means is that there is significantly less toxicity associated with intrathecal medications. An example of this is if somebody were to require 300 milligrams of morphine, they actually only need one milligram in their intrathecal pump. That means that less than 1% of the same oral medication needs to be delivered to the intrathecal space. 
When we combine opioids with local anesthetic, we see even better improved pain control. And therefore, intrathecal pumps can be a very powerful option for cancer patients. I do want to provide the disclaimer here that I did title my talk, Treating Cancer Pain Without Opioids. But in essence, we are talking about opioids here, but just in much, much smaller doses. We do also rely significantly on local anesthetic when we do intrathecal therapy, but there is a tiny bit of opioids in the mix as well. The National Cancer National Comprehensive Cancer Network agrees that intrathecal therapy is important for cancer patients. And in their practice guidelines, most recently updated in 2019, they wrote, the intrathecal route of opioid administration should be considered in patients with intolerable sedation, confusion, and or inadequate pain management with systemic opioid administration. This slide shows you what the pump looks like and the two parts that the patient receives, the antenna on the far left and the tablet device in the middle. The pump actually continuously and automatically delivers continuous medication that is programmed by the clinician, but the patient may also have access to what we call patient-controlled intrathecal analgesia, whereby the patient can actually deliver an additional bolus of medication to themselves. How that works is they take the antenna pictured on the very, very far left and put it on top of their skin overlying the pump. They then take the kind of phone tablet device that says deliver bolus and they're able to press that play button and it actually delivers a bolus. The device also shows the refill date and some basic pump info, such as what medications are in there and what the concentrations and doses are of the medications they're receiving. This allows patients to be able to get pain control when they're sleeping overnight with the continuous infusion and also have additional control during the day when they may have activities that worsen their pain by delivering additional boluses as well. There is some ongoing management that's required for intrathecal pumps. First, we need to do post-operative wound checks, and this typically occurs about once a week for about a month or so for cancer patients because they typically do a, a poor job of wound healing. This can be performed in the hospice or home care setting as well. Next, we also need to consider pump reprogram, and this can occur as soon as day one, immediately after the pump has been implanted. And this allows us to adjust the doses as frequently as we desire, which allows the patient to have adjustments and variety in the medications that they get. One of the things I really like about intrathecal therapy is that it's very versatile. Once a pump is placed, we can continue to use it if pain progresses to other areas, and we can increase the doses to match the progression of disease. In pump reprogramming, the antenna is placed on top of the pump, which communicates with the programmer. This is the best picture I could find, but actually now what we see is that we're using wireless devices where the antenna is wirelessly connecting to the, the programmer, which now looks more like a tablet. Pump refills are part of the ongoing management as well for intrathecal pumps, and they may be utilized in a couple of settings. The most obvious being when the medication runs out, which can commonly occur at a roughly a monthly interval for my cancer patients who are on relatively high doses of pain medications in their pumps. 
Another reason to do a pump refill, even when the medication isn't completely empty, is to adjust the medication combinations. For example, adding a new medication to the mix or adjusting the ratios of the medications in the pump. To perform a pump refill, we anesthetize the skin with some local anesthetic, and then we use a very small needle to access the refill port. We use the syringe and the catheter attached to the needle to remove the medication that's in the pump and then replace that with new medication. Importantly, this can also be performed at home or in a hospice setting. And we now have home infusion services that can help with reprogramming and pump refills at home. As with any type of surgery, there are risks involved. There are procedural risks and there are device risks. But in addition, we also know that there are some medication risks as well because we are using medications in intrathecal pumps. For procedural risks, the common ones include infection and bleeding, which we discussed earlier may be increased in cancer patients, as well as poor wound healing for cancer patients. The side effects from medications are relatively similar to the oral medication side effects, but are much less pronounced for those opioids, especially if you can recall that 1 to 300 ratio. Local anesthetics that are used for in the pump can cause muscle weakness, low blood pressure, and bowel and bladder dysfunction. The device risks are generally less concerning for cancer patients because of the decreased duration of therapy. There can, however, be pump malfunction and catheter migration and infection of the pump or catheter. I do wanna note that while they are considered to be MRI conditional, one of the popular brands of this pump actually requires the medication to be completely removed prior to an MRI and can be fatal if that is not adequately followed. The brand that we use at UCSF does not have the safety concern, and we routinely put patients into the scanner without any adjustments to their pump. We just checked afterwards that the pump is still working in place. I want to discuss a little bit about the outcomes that have been described for intrathecal therapy. While there are lots of studies out there, I wanted to highlight this particular one. In 2002, there was a randomized controlled trial looking at 202 patients comparing standard treatment, comprehensive medical management, and implantable drug delivery system, IDDS, which is another term for intrathecal pump. On the left-hand image, you can see on the far left panel that on the y-axis, they're looking at the VAS, which is a visual analog score of pain. And what we see here is that in the blue group, the intrathecal pump group, patients had a bigger change to their pain compared to the medication group. On the right-hand side, we see that the drug toxicity and the mean change related to that is on the y-axis. And here we see an even bigger change in the change in the drug toxicity for patients in the blue group, the intrathecal pump group, versus those in the medication group, the red group. Overall, they found that more patients in the intrathecal pump group, 85%, reported greater than 20% reduction in pain scores or 20% reduction in toxicity, compared with the standard medication care group, which, in which only 71% reported the same outcome. For me, that difference between 85% and 71% is meaningful, but perhaps what is more meaningful and more interesting about the study 
is the fact that they found such a statistically and clinically significant difference in side effects, specifically with fatigue and depressed level of consciousness. In this graph here, you can see that the blue group had a much higher reduction in mean severity of fatigue and depressed level of consciousness in particular, as well as most of the other side effects. For most of our patients, the quality of life is really important. And by having improvements in fatigue and better alertness, we can actually interact with our loved ones. And that is incredibly meaningful. I'd like to return to Darren's story. We placed him into fecal pump and initially set his settings at two milligrams a day of hydromorphone and bupivacaine, which is a local anesthetic, and also provided him the option to use up to 15 boluses a day of 0.5 milligrams of these medications. Even at its maximum usage, this only represented less than 1% of the original dose of those over 1,000 milligrams of opioids that he was taking before. His pain scores decreased from 8 to 3. He experienced improved sedation, and he was able to decrease his oral and systemic opioids by 90%. Darren's story was complicated, however, because we did have to go back to the operating room and do a catheter revision because he had a catheter leak. But after that time, the pump was working better, and despite progression of disease, we were mostly able to manage with ongoing adjustments of his intrathecal medications. Darren was able to experience a lot more life because he did not have to undergo palliative sedation. And in those final months of his life, he accomplished many things. He was able to march with the marching band, and he was able to attend a concert of his favorite band, 21 Pilots. And just days before his death, he was able to give a speech at a high school leadership conference, all because his pain was better controlled and he was much more alert. Finally, I wanted to share a quote by my patient's wife. She wrote, we used the pump right up to the last moment of A's passing and we're fortunate to be with him as our son and I were able to hold him as he gasped those last breaths, mouthing that he loved us and projecting one single tear. The gift of the pump gave us time with A who knew who we were up to the last moment and allowed all of us to prepare for his passing. I'd like to conclude by reviewing some take-home points. First, I want to make it very clear that despite the title of my talk, opioids are first-line management for cancer pain. They are part of the WHO stepladder and should be the first line of treatment for cancer pain. However, opioids may not be adequate for pain control in all cancer patients and can be associated with problems such as abuse and adverse drug effects especially in survivors. Today, we discussed some alternatives to opioids, including acupuncture and mindfulness, which are considered non-pharmacological options. We also spent some time discussing interventional pain management, specifically the techniques of trigger point injections, steroid or chemical nerve blocks, and intrathecal pumps. Patients who might benefit from alternatives to opioids include those who have uncontrolled pain, or have intolerable systemic side effects from those medications. In addition, when we think about interventions, the best patients are those who, are, who have pain in a regional or localized body area. Patients who are undergoing a rapid dose escalation of their medications without any improvement of their symptoms 
or those who are on a high opioid requirement may also be patients who are good candidates for alternatives to opioids. And finally, I'd just like to review the benefits of some of these opioid-free opioid pain management strategies. They include better pain control, fewer side effects, and improved quality of life. Thank you so much for your attention. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak to you tonight, and I'll take any questions at this time. And what a great talk. Excellent talk. Thank you for sharing your patients' stories and voice. That's very important. And um, thank you to Darren's mom for joining us today and sharing Dr. Allowing uh, Dr. Shah to share her son's story. That was very important as well. Many treatment modalities and benefits were covered today. And there are a few questions um, and I thought I could send them your way. Uh, one question we had was, is chemotherapy a contraindication for injections? It's not, that's a really important question. So depending on the type of treatment that a patient is having, we can sometimes time in and around chemo treatments. The easiest time sometimes is actually to have a patient get a treatment from an intervention the same day as starting their new cycle of chemotherapy. The concerns that we have around chemotherapy are really the side effects that chemotherapy can have, especially on the white count, which leads to in, uh, suppression of the of the immune system or problems with bleeding, such as destruction of platelets. So we try to time and we look at labs relative to the chemotherapy cycle, but no, it's not an absolute contraindication by any stretch of the imagination. It is really important that we work very closely with oncologists and make sure that we understand the timing of chemotherapy. Really occasionally we might need to delay a chemotherapy cycle but I really try very, very hard to avoid that. As I know, for most of my patients, getting to that chemo cycle is perhaps the most important thing for them. And actually, what I wanted to say, which we didn't talk about too much today, is I've also helped patients who had such terrible pain that their functional status made it so that they were unable to tolerate chemotherapy. With some interventions and some other improvements in their pain, they actually were able to improve their functional status and allow them to get chemotherapy. So that I've seen in many of my patients. And actually, I think that might be one of the most powerful reasons to try an intervention to try to get a patient to therapy. Oh, excellent. That's, that's good to hear. And I and I can see the benefits for that. Absolutely. Um, another question asked, are there some narcotics that might be safer than others in the treatment of cancer pain? So in terms of some of the adverse effects, we don't really see that certain medications are better than others. I will say that there's a very individual experience for individuals with their specific opioids. So someone who has really bad side effects from morphine might do better with oxycodone, but somebody else might actually find that the oxycodone is terrible and morphine works better for them. The studies don't really show that these specific adverse events are tied to specific medications. There is one type of medication we didn't talk about today called buprenorphine, which is a very complicated special opioid medication. And that has been shown to potentially be safer overall, not just in cancer patients, but in all comers for chronic pain, for example. And that might possibly be a safer alternative. However, we really don't see that. And even the weak opioids, like the tramadol, that can be associated with pretty significant side effects. 
And I've actually had my patients do worse on the weak opioids than on the stronger opioids, just because of their specific side effect profile. Okay. All right. That's, it's interesting to hear that it's so individualized, but I could see that based on everyone's metabolism. If narcotics are the only medications that work and sedation does occur, do you ever recommend a stimulant to help counterbalance the side effects? Yeah, that's a really good question. There are some patients who benefit from that, and Ritalin is actually not uncommonly used to help with improving the sedation. But oftentimes, I find that patients aren't just sedated, but they're having a lot of other side effects from their opioids as well. So once we start the Ritalin, the other side effects still remain, you know, for example, their constipation. And so it's also a little bit complicated to try to treat the side effects of one medication with even more medications. And it becomes a very complicated process whereby patients are taking more and more pills, one after another, each trying to address the side effects from the one before. I see. Um, another question came in about the pump. Uh, this is very interesting. Are there any restrictions with the IT pump with respect to let's say air travel or any daily activities that somebody might ensue? I, I know you'd already discussed imaging and with respect to their surveillance, they may need to have routine MRIs, but what about travel or limitations in that respect? So there are no general limitations on travel, but if you're a thrill seeker and you're planning on jumping on a plane and flying out of that plane and jump out of that plane, then that would be contraindicated, mostly because we don't want the pump to get exposed to various different pressures. Similarly, if you're a scuba diver, then that would also cause changes in the pressure, which could alter how the medication is delivered. But generally speaking, outside of these pretty extreme activities, there isn't significant contraindication. In the first six weeks after a pump is placed, we do limit the activity because we don't want the catheter to move. So for example, we probably wouldn't recommend horseback riding or some extreme contact sports. But over time, we don't find that it's a problem and we're really just trying to protect the pump, but there's not significant impact from certainly not your everyday activity and certainly not from getting on a plane. In fact, there are patients, um, elderly patients who travel back and forth from warmer states and colder states, you know, spending their summers in the Northeast and then coming out to California or Arizona for the winters. And those patients get their pumps managed and they do this routinely and they find two sets of doctors who are managing their pumps at the different locations. Oh, that's very interesting. I know, uh, I'm not sure if you covered this, but could you um, discuss home care for pumps? Is that possible? Yeah, so it's only become recently possible. And I'm sad to say that unfortunately, Darren did not get the benefit and Sherry had to drive multiple times up from their home to UCSF. But over the last few years, there has been an increase in the availability of home care. So most, I think if not all, of my cancer patients do get enrolled with a home infusion company that actually works with them at home and sends a nurse to do both any reprogramming as well as any refills. This really allows us to expand our services beyond just the Bay Area and patients as far as Reno and Southern California have used our services and worked with these home infusion companies so that they don't have to deal with coming to the clinic. Um, and also, you know, with 
UCSF was always doing a lot of telemedicine even before the pandemic, but now we're doing even more remote medicine. And as a result, we can really use the technology that we have now to do remote medicine with our patients and the nurses at home to really coordinate a really good plan for their care with their pumps. Absolutely. I, I feel this is a developing aspect of medicine and UCSF has definitely taken the lead on this. So um, I could see how the uh, palliative and cancer patients would also benefit from this as well. Now, I know you also spoke about um, acupuncture and um, other modalities there. Do you feel things like a cancer group or cancer survivor groups or just cancer groups are beneficial as well? Absolutely. You know, we talked a little bit about that biopsychosocial model, right? We talked about support systems and trying to decrease stress and reduce that adrenaline rush that increases the abnormal firing of nerves that leads to exacerbations of pain. So anything that you can do to improve your own mental health, where, whereby it's support groups or any type of other group, it can be very beneficial to the pain. I will say that I think there are limitations to the extent to which that can be helpful. You know, if you have nine or 10 out of 10 pain as a result of your cancer, being a support group may not decrease your pain all the way down, but it's really meaningful and can be very impactful. And the other thing I will say is that in pain management, we really want to treat as many modalities as possible so that we can harness the benefits of each individual type of modality while minimizing the risk. For example, if you're in a cancer support group and that increases, improves your pain just a little bit, maybe that means you can decrease your opioid medications just a little bit. And therefore, there's an overall benefit there as well. That makes sense too. Having all of these aspects working together synergistically to um, allow you to, to reduce the medications if, if need be to improve quality of life. Um, Dr. Shah, this is an excellent talk. Very good. And thank you for... Um, answering those questions. I know some of them can be um, challenging at times, so I appreciate you doing that. And, uh, but it was an excellent talk. And again, I always enjoy hearing. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.